daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Ding Hanin, Beijing. Coming up, China vows to build itself into a into an agricultural powerhouse with food security and rural revitalization prioritized. China tells the Philippine side to resolve the South China Sea tensions through consultation and dialogue. The U.S. is building coalition to create a safe corridor in the Red Sea in the wake of rising ship diversions. And in the U.K., the country's Supreme Court has confirmed that artificial intelligence cannot patent inventions. So, to listen to this episode again, or to catch up on previous episodes. Download our podcast by searching "World Today." Chinese President Xi Jinping has called for lasting efforts to advance rural revitalization and strengthen the foundation for the agricultural sector. Xi Jinping made the remark at the annual Central Rural World Conference held this week. The Chinese leader stressed safeguarding food security by stabilizing the land acreage for grain production and increasing production efficiency per unit. Xi Jinping also called for intensifying efforts to achieve core technological breakthroughs in order to inject vitality and momentum into agricultural modernization. And this meeting has analyzed the challenges facing China's rural sector, while at the same time mapping out the priorities for rural work in 2024. The meeting has set a target of more than 650 billion kilograms for China's grain output in 2024. China has actually achieved the same target for nine consecutive years. So joining us now on the line is Dr. Yao Shujian, Chengkong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. Hi. Yeah. So why do you think, as we can、uh, clearly tell from this meeting's readout, why do you think China has prioritized food security、uh, for its rural work next year? Yeah, China have a huge population of 1.4 billion. And feeding the Chinese population without high inflation、uh, is, is actually guaranteed by adequate supply of food and agricultural product. So this is why food security becomes the most important uh, uh, priority for the Chinese central government. And it has reflected in in all the Chinese official document for over the last twenty years. So,、um, you know, food security, adequate food supply, and stable prices are very important to guarantee that the Chinese people have a, a certain good level of, of quality of life.、Mm. So, China's grain output, for example, actually hit a new high、uh, over the course of this year in 2023, despite、uh, the fact that China saw some, you know, extreme cases of weather conditions and natural disasters like flooding over the course of summer. That's for sure. So, Professor Yao, in your understanding, why do you think? Uh, this is the case. What do you think is the driving force behind this new high in terms of grain production? Yeah, there are three primary factors that contributing to the stable、uh, supply of grain in China and the high level of production over the last few years. Actually,、um, the the mechanization that replaced human labor, which、mm-hmm. is the most important factors,、uh, because with mechanization, agricultural production. Uh, could be、uh, you know produced far more efficiently than the previous production、uh, methods using a, 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 you know human power. And secondly, is the improvement of irrigation and also the construction of high quality agricultural、uh, cultivating land. So this is the the second issue. And other the other thing is the improvement in the biochemical industry. Uh, and particularly the innovation of new variety of different agricultural produce,、uh, such as rice, wheat, cotton, etc., and also the increased、uh, quality of fertilizers, pesticides, which are effectively、uh, you know useful、uh, for imp- improving the land productivity per acre of agricultural product. So、mm-hmm. this is the
uh, very important accumulation of the the, the high quality agricultural productivity over the last four decades. Mm. So today, we know the overall mechanization rate in agricultural cultivation and agricultural harvest uh, here in China has already exceeded 73% on average. So, uh, Professor, what do you think is the role of technology and science in terms of stabilizing and diversifying China's uh, food supply system? And what do you think needs to be done in order for China to achieve uh, some core technological breakthroughs in the agricultural industry? Yeah, China have uh, you know uh, using this mechanization to replace labor. So the, the 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 labor input into the agricultural sector in absolute terms have been reduced by many fold, but agricultural land productivity have increased by uh, tens of times. So this is due to the high application of mechanization. And 70, 73% is quite a remarkable achievement, particularly uh, machinery is used for the most difficult agricultural task, captive uh, transplanting, uh, harvesting, and it's also land plowing and storage. Uh, These uh, are the most labor consumer and hardest work for agriculture. Now, what China need to do to improve is uh, a few things, as I just mentioned, the factors that have contributing to the steady uh, supply of agricultural product are the factors that China have to strengthen and improve the quality even further. For example, the, the innovation of new variety, which mm-hmm. is going to be uh, pesticide or, uh, or, or, you know, disease uh, more existence and high quality and useful for different climate uh, conditions. So the new variety of different products is one of the, one of the important areas, particularly the high quality seed for gram and, and, and vegetable and, and uh, you know, fruit and uh, livestock products, etc. Now, the other thing that China need to do is to make sure that agricultural land the quality of agricultural land will be improved uh, steadily, particularly in the mountain area, mm-hmm. where the water leakage and irrigation is the most demanding uh, task. And yeah. those can be improved with new technologies, particularly the you know the dripping irrigation, which um, China have learned a lot from uh, Israel, and China have also done a great job in terms of improving the irrigation effectiveness. Effectivity. Mm. Now, these are another uh, factors that China can do. And also to improve the quality of fertilizer and pesticide. Uh, on the one hand, it can be used to improve the land acreage output. On the other hand, it will have limited amount of uh, you know, damage to the quality of soil. So, uh, you know, plantation rotation, scientific method for plantation rotation, uh, you know, greenhouses construction uh, for uh, different crops to high, especially the high value crops. This requires a lot of agricultural investment. It's, it's not just um, you know uh, raw material, but also technology. For example, the farm houses mm-hmm. that require some sort of uh, you know heating as well as uh, digital control and so on and so forth. These are highly technology and capital intensive. So. China can do a lot to improve the overall agricultural uh, environment and productivity. Mm, Okay. So in addition to the issue of uh, food security, uh, there's a meeting uh, called Central uh, Central Rural World Conference annually has also called for more to be done to improve rural industrial uh, development, rural construction, and rural governance. Now, um, actually, rural revitalization has been uh, has been serving as a national security of China for more than five years since uh, late twenty seventeen. I think. What do you think is the key to advancing this particular goal? Yeah, China has made a huge progress in terms of revitalizing the agricultural rural sector. Uh, the purpose is to 
reduce the pressure of urbanization and to improve the quality of urbanization because uh, China has such a huge population which which will tremendous task if everyone moved to the city. So in the end, there will be a certain proportion of people who wish to stay in the countryside or even the city people, they would like to move to the countryside where the, the, at least the quality of air and the quality of living condition uh, is much better than in the urban area. Mm. So uh, the, the only difficulty for the people to live in the countryside is that the convenience of life and also the quality of life, including uh, medical care, uh, industrial services, and so on and so forth. So if the, if the countryside, the rural area, can be built so that social services such as health care, education, and also the living environment uh, can be improved, then more and more people would like to stay in the countryside or some people would like to move into the countryside. So in the future, I mean, the countryside is not just primarily using for agricultural production. But it could be also a very good place for people to live there, mm. and this is why we need to revitalize the, the you know the rural area. Mm. Exactly. Talking more about that, I mean, as part of a bigger effort to push forward rural revitalization, many uh, towns or village level uh, governments are nowadays uh, putting a lot of resources, uh, like uh, renovation and other kind of. Uh, Uh, real estate development in terms of developing local tourism, like homestay businesses. And over the course of this year, some village-themed amateur sports events like uh, soccer games and basketball games have also become buzzwords here on the Chinese internet. So, Professor, what is your thought about this? And by the way, if we are talking about a scenario when uh, this kind of uh, businesses or events or entertainment uh, events become homogeneous. Uh, do you think that that will become a problem? Yes, we, I mean, if too much, uh, you know, single activity to attract tourism or to attract people to like the countryside, uh, in the short term, certainly it will have a, a fairly demonstrating, uh, demonstrating effect. To attract people there, but as the as the activity become more colorful and more uh, plentiful, then you know the activity could be diversified rather than homogeneous. Like mm. they could be heterogeneous in terms of not only the sporting but also eating, uh, cultural activity, and so on and so forth. Although on the one hand there is a very strong demand for these kinds of life living stuff. On the other hand, I think there's still a long way to go to make the countryside as attractive as a living space as some of the most populous uh, urban areas. So China uh, have to reduce the imbalance uh, between the development in the in the metropolitan area as well as in the countryside. So that the countryside in the in the future they are going to play two important roles. The first law is that it can attract a certain proportion of people wishing to stay or live there. The other supporting role that the countryside can play is to become the back garden uh, for the urban residents. The urban residents, they spend uh, Monday to Friday working hard in the, in the visit office. In the weekend or in the long holiday, they can find some place in the countryside for leisure. So they have to just kind of, uh, you know, Uh, supplementary uh, support between the countryside and the city, as we can see in many parts of the European countries. So China is uh, mm. aiming to build this kind of uh, you know, harmony between the metropolitan city and the rural area. This is a long way to go, and there will be a lot of more effort that we see the government wishing to do. Thank you very much. We have been speaking with Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkong Professor of Economics with Chongqing University. You are listening to World Today. Stay tuned. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. 
In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has urged the Philippines to take the proper management of the current maritime situation as a top priority. Wang Yi made the remark in a phone call with his Philippine counterpart Eric Manalo. He said the current difficulties in the bilateral ties are due to the Philippines changing its policy stance, emphasizing that China is always committed to resolving differences through dialogue. For his part, Mr. Eric Manalo said the Philippine side is willing to strengthen dialogue in good faith and jointly seek a solution to the issue. The two sides have agreed to hold a bilateral consultative meeting on the South China Sea as soon as possible. So, joining us now on the line is Dr. Yang Xinyu, senior research fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you very much for joining us.、Uh, thank you, my pleasure. So. Uh, do you agree with Mr. Wang Yi's point that the Philippines appears to be、uh, misjudging the current situation and even somehow colluding with some ill-intentioned external forces to stir up troubles?、Uh, yes, it's very clear that behind the changing position of the Philippines recently, we have uh, uh, seen. The,、uh, the, the so-called third parties' efforts and activities, even statements, say from Washington D.C. For example,、um, the、uh, in terms of international law, international rules,、uh, the so-called Kalayan Island claimed by the、uh, Philippines in the South China Sea、uh, are totally illegal. That was that was and、uh, had been. Recognized by the U.S. government through the State Department documents, because the、uh, treaty—I mean,、uh, Treaty of Paris between U.S. and Spain in 1898—explicitly、uh, joined the Philippine territorial domain、uh, very clearly, and uh, the the uh, part relating to South China Sea is their limits is on the、uh, eastern longitude,、uh, eastern. Mm-hmm. Along with due to one one age, and the so-called Kalayan、uh, Islands claimed by、uh, Philippines, it's extremely beyond the Western limit. Say out of the treaty, that is uh, uh, understood clearly and、uh, signed clearly by the United States. And for a long time, U.S. has no statement and no commitment to the、uh, extended.、Uh, Territorial commitment, but recently U.S. officials uh, uh, publicly say uh, their treaty with the、uh, uh, Philippines would cover the disputes on the Kalayan Islands. So such illegal statements from Washington really reflects the misjudging、uh, situation by the Philippines. I think the recent、uh, re-raising disputes between、uh, provoked by the Philippines against China actually. Affected by Washington D.C.、Mm. So, do you think、uh, the settlement of disputes through dialogue and a consultation is an effective way for neighboring countries to get along with one another? And by the way, what kind of lessons or general rules or experience do you think we can and we should learn from the development of the bilateral China-Philippine ties over the years? Well, it's a quite a fundamental question. During the past experiences、uh, on the disputes on South China Sea, we we do have both successful experiences and、uh, sad lessons. So, whenever the related parties, I mean、uh, mm. the contacted parties,、yeah. uh, sit down at the table、uh, to explore the peaceful solution, then. The situation here、uh, was always stable,、uh, and、uh, by the same token, whenever the, one of the parties go to the unilateral efforts want to change the status quo, then uh, the uh, uh, the situation is unstable. I mean, the status quo is, for for example, before 1970s, no any sovereign countries. Surrounding South China Sea, publicly, officially, state yeah, uh, their、mm. claim. 
and that the international community has a long time recognition of the uh, uh, acknowledgement that the, all the parts of the islands and the shells uh, belong to China. But uh, since 1970s, more and more calibers come. And uh, if any of the newcomers go to the unilateral, for example, the Philippines activities since 1970s, uh, then the situation has dropped. So I think uh, mm. for the current uh, difficult situation, the only when Philippines and China sit down to discuss, exchange views, and uh, to increase mutual understanding, then we can lay a good base for the possible solution in peaceful manner. If uh, the Philippines continue to their provocative unilateral activity, I think the situation will go to worse and worse. That mm. will harm both the Philippines and Chinese uh, interests. Yeah. So realistically speaking, or more specifically, uh, in order to make a bilateral uh, consultative meeting on the South China Sea happen as soon as possible, what do you think needs to be done by both sides uh, in order to create a, a good environment or some sort of a favorable conditions for this kind of meeting? Yeah, I think it's a key question uh, to return the current uh, uh, controversial into the stable situation. I think we need to have a creative, create a uh, creative uh, method mm. to pull the situation uh, back to the peaceful state. Uh, firstly, my my opinion is firstly, uh, the Philippines should stop completely stop the recent unilateral activity that has been throughout the status quo of that area. And secondly, uh, both sides should uh, uh, send the uh, officials uh, on the table to explore two levels of issues. Number one, how to freeze the current dispute. And secondly, based on the freeze the status quo and uh, to explore the possible way uh, on one hand uh, to solve uh, the mm. differences yeah. uh, uh, on, on one hand, and the other, try to explore the joint efforts for the joint venture, because uh, obviously the common, the shared interests between the Philippines and the Chinese are much greater than the uh, specific differences mm. on this area. So yeah. when we put the shared interests on the top priority, Meanwhile, in this on peaceful manner to solve this issue, then we can have the hope and the possibility to solve this issue at last. Mm. So a Chinese mentality about South China Sea is that relevant parties need to work together to turn disputes into opportunities for maritime cooperation. Are you optimistic that this mentality will eventually prevail over confrontation in the region? Very briefly. Well, I think it's a complicated answer. If there was uh, uh, no any external powers, then I would be uh, optimistic. And uh, or if uh, the third party outside pressure uh, make uh, more interference and uh, the more difficulties for the peaceful solution and uh, for the peace possibilities here. So the key question is whether or not we should stop the mm. third party's intervention. Uh, so that we can have a uh, uh, peaceful and a quiet environment for the bilateral and uh, consultations and the uh, mm. uh, solution efforts. Yeah, your point's well taken, but thank you very much for joining us. That was Dr. Yang Xiyu, Senior Research Fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Ding Hen in Beijing. The U.S. has announced the creation of a naval force operating in the Southern Red Sea in order to fend off attacks on merchant shipping from Yemen Houthi rebels. Participants in this particular U.S.-led coalition include countries like the U.K., Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, etc. 
However, some regional Arabic powers like Egypt and Saudi Arabia are not involved here. Houthi leaders claim that their campaign is in response to Israel's military operation against Hamas. So, for more, I earlier had a conversation with Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Center for Counterhegemonic Studies, a think tank based in Sydney. Thank you very much for joining us today. First of all, how would you assess the effectiveness of such a U.S.-led initiative?、Um, some people expect the Houthi attacks to continue for now, despite the U.S. announcement. What is your take? Yes, I think、um, the the Yemeni attacks. Bear in mind that what they call the Houthi rebels are really a, a coalition government which controls about 70% of Yemen. So they have control of the armed forces and all the resources of the armed forces of Yemen.、Um, I can expect the attacks to continue because Yemen has effectively declared war on Israel, and they're doing what they're doing to try and support the Palestinian people in Gaza. So I expect those、uh, those operations are going to continue. Hmm. So, by the way, what do you think is the rationale, or what do you think is the thinking behind、uh, the actions by the Houthis? I'm asking this question because it appears, according to some media reports, it appears some of the merchant vessels under their attacks have have really no connection with Israel.、Uh, they they have the Yemenis have themselves said that they are. All ships which are they've turned off their transponders. They're not、uh, giving any information about where they're going, but the Yemeni authorities have decided that they are going to the Israelis,、um, whether they're European companies or Asian companies, basically. So,、um, according to the Yemeni authorities, they're saying that they want all the ships to、uh, provide the normal information, the normal tracking information.、Mm. So why do you think neither Saudi Arabia nor Egypt is involved here? I mean, neither of these、uh, regional powers is involved in this U.S.-led coalition, because、uh, these two countries are supposed to be the the regional ally of Washington over there. That's right, and the Egyptians have been allied with the Israelis in imposing the siege on Gaza, and the Saudis are, of course, the ones who are at the center of the war. Against the, the, the what's called the National Salvation Government in the capital of Yemen these days, so、uh, and they, they were losing out on that really. So it, it is a fair question: why the Saudis are not involved? Why the Israelis themselves are not involved? I suppose it will be seen as a, a great provocation, and the Yemenis would would take great pleasure in trying to target、um, any Saudi or, or Israeli ship. I think that that's probably going to raise the temperature there. But the U.S. is, of course, acting. Uh, as it's in its normal sponsor role to try and protect the Israelis in these circumstances, and they've rounded up as many countries as they can, basically. But it is notable that Egypt and Saudis and the Israelis themselves are not part of this.、Mm. So, if we、uh, talk about、uh, the involvement or the participation by some of these、uh, European countries, like the UK. The Netherlands,、uh, Spain, uh, Italy, France, etc., etc.、Um, how do you think their involvement or participation will、uh, will make、uh, things different? Well, the U.S. always tries to get some others along in the operations that it wants to run, so it doesn't look like it's just the same old, the same old North Americans doing what they always do there, basically. But I suppose、mm. they've scared some of the Europeans by saying that. Look, this is a threat to global shipping and global trade.、Uh, the Yemeni authorities have tried to make it plain that that is not the case. So, if、uh, ships, for example, were saying we are, you know, coming from Asia and we're going to Italy or something like that, the Yemeni authorities have tried to make it clear that they will let those ships through. But the, the fact is that many ships have been worried and they've turned off their tracking systems,、mm. and then that, they've, they've run into problems in that way.、Mm. So, do you think the United States, by creating this coalition and by establishing this particular、uh, naval protection force, will run a risk of escalating the conflict to a point where、uh, Washington and its allies will need to bomb Yemen to suppress the Houthis from launching attacks? Well, of course, they have been bombing Yemen for some time. I、yeah. mean, there's been this war going on in the background.、Uh, there's no reason to suggest that they need to bomb Yemen. 
But it, it, the the task force in itself is an escalation. It, and frankly, the Yemeni authorities are some of the only people that are trying to stop it. They've made it very clear the links between their attacks on the ships and the uh, and the siege that's going on in, in Gaza at the moment. I think that uh, the U.S. dragging in some other partners, and some of them are very small and some of them are larger, is, is certainly a step in, in the direction of escalation. I think if it if it comes to direct attacks on Yemen itself, of course, the Yemeni people have been suffering for many years what's been called the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Uh, and there are some doubts now about whether the UN's World Food Program is getting through to Yemeni people, partly based on the rationale that the Yemenis have weighed into this war um, mm. uh, that the Yemenis have, have, have declared on, on the Israelis. So it would be a terrible escalation, really, because the Yemeni people are already besieged and suffering a great deal. Mm. So can the United States afford to make another uh, front line with the Houthis, realistically speaking? They've tried to avoid it. They, with, mm. the, with the war on Yemen, they were using the Saudis, the Emiratis, and to some extent the Israelis. Remember, the Israelis are also occupying some of Yemen's territory. Socotra Island, the World Heritage Island um, south of Yemen, is occup- currently occupied by Israelis. So the Yemenis have a number of reasons to be hostile to the Israelis, and uh, the U.S. has tried to avoid the impression that it's directly involved with the Yemeni war, but of course they are, and they, they've been they've been um, they've been branded as such by the Yemenis. They 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 know that the the U.S. has been behind the war against Yemen, uh, which which began back in 2015, but is there's been some uneasy sort of ceasefire in the last couple of years. Mm. So data from a Swiss logistics company shows that more than 120 vessels capable of carrying 1.6 million shipping containers had already um, rerouted via the Cape of Good Hope in Africa as of Wednesday uh, afternoon. And almost all of the world's major container shipping lines are reportedly no longer sending their vessels through the Red Sea that goes to and from the Suez Canal. So to what extent do you think this episode will reshape the global trade? And by the way, do you think this is a sign that uh, the Gaza crisis is indeed escalating into something with a wider ramification for the entire world? I'm afraid that's true, and uh, you're right, of course. Most of the major shipping lines have been scared off. They're clearly not totally satisfied with the Yemeni assurances that they're only targeting ships going to the Israelis. Um, so they have rerouted, and it's imposing additional costs on shipping. And yes, that's indeed a, a part of the escalation of this, of this Gaza crisis. I mean, I think that the Yemenis will say, well, who else in the world is doing something to stop this? You know, the Europeans, the North Americans have done nothing to try and restrain the Israelis, who, are, after all, they support, they sponsor, they, they, they collaborate. Dr. Tim Anderson, director of the Center for Counter-Hegemonic Studies, a Sydney-based think tank. You are listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. You are listening to World Today. Argentinian President Javier Malay has unveiled a sweeping decree to mandate more than 300 measures to deregulate the Argentinian economy. The decree is looking to strike down major regulations covering the country's housing rental market, export customs arrangements, land ownership, food retailers, and more. It is also looking to modify rules for the airline, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and tourism industries to encourage competition. The new rules are also seeking to change the legal status of state-owned companies, allowing for their privatization. The decree is marking a partial realization of Malay's campaign promises. So joining us now on the line is Professor Liu Baochen, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics with the University of International Business and Economics. Welcome back. Yeah, 
Hi there. So, in general, do you think deregulation is a solution to Argentina's current economic woes? I think largely it is because the bureaucracy is really straining the uh, dynamics of, of uh, Argentina economy. There has been a lot red tapes. Uh, also, there has been a lot of overlap between uh, different uh, ministries and uh, between the central government versus provincial and local government. So that really is a challenge to those uh, investors. Uh, in that uh, particular country, and uh, it, uh, it is uh, often complained it takes too long time, and there's ill transparency, etc. I think that's the right way to go, and by streamlining some of the ministries and uh, make a uh, more efficient government is the uh, way to go. Uh, however, the problem is that uh, they may have to face uh, uh, a number of challenges because the vested interests. Uh, would really be a, a backlash uh, if they take a very dramatic measure to cut down the uh, red tape bureaucracy and uh, particularly by displacing more of the uh, government workforce. Mm, and also political opposition might be mighty as well because we know the labor union over there in Argentina is very powerful and strong, and the reform by the president is looking to, you know, reduce the, uh, the the wealth benefits for those laborers, uh, labor protection. Let's put it in this way. So, yeah. So, analyzing the situation case by case, Professor, do you think there were any particular economic industries where you think deregulation is absolutely needed and should be absolutely pushed forward? And on the other hand, there are areas where a deregulation issue should be dealt with uh, more cautiously. Well, if you look at their uh, history of reform, there has been uh, a roller coaster type of way: the left wing, right wing, uh, nationalization and deregulation, etc. I think now uh, Mili is very determined to go for uh, deregulation and also privatization. So uh, at the moment, there is a significant uh, state share in uh, the major industries like uh, telecom, state media, uh, energy and transportation, and uh, the uh, public facilities, etc. So it can really help to uh, unleash uh, some of the efficiencies, and uh, also it may uh, help to reduce the uh, corruption. So again, the caution is that uh, uh, if they further uh, privatize the uh, public services like healthcare, education, public utilities, etc., uh, this may cause uh, some of the uh, chaoses in the social uh, living standard of those people, and particularly they will have to encounter strong resistance. Mm. Uh, from the trade union, as you mentioned. Already, trade unions has been organizing for the protest. And uh, another issue is that uh, for environmental regulation, if uh, further dere- uh, deregulation can really be implemented and the privatization is being carried out, mm. and they need a long-term plan uh, to be able to avoid the ecolo- uh, ecological challenges. Hmm. So in the meantime, on the financial front, Argentina's new government uh, auctioned about 3.7 billion U.S. dollars worth of treasury debts denominated in its own currency peso on Wednesday as the new government is seeking to clear a spiraling pile of short-term central bank debts held by local creditors. Uh, these debts uh, were actually created by the previous government's let's say, dependence on money printing in order to finance the, the, the government's physical deficit. So what do you think could be the, the pros and cons of this latest practice? Well, they're running out of money. So uh, the fiscal coffer is almost very dry. And plus, they also have the burden not only to pay uh, those uh, debts for the global financial institutions. They need also uh, have the uh, uh, transfer payments to the provincial and local government. 
So uh, there's no other way they can really raise money. China did really came to the help um, by the current, uh, currency swap, but uh, that's really limited. They have to find their own way to do it. By privatizing uh, some of the state-owned businesses, they can really uh, gain some of the money. But uh, that depends on how the market would, re- would re- uh, really assign a value on it. And so the auction of trade debt is the one that is really to borrow uh, from the uh, international community, from their own citizens, etc. Mm. And but the uh, if the money can be used wisely and to generate the right uh, return on investment, so that will work. But uh, if the money is being uh, embezzled or money is being uh, misused uh, for some projects that doesn't really generate productivity, they will run into a deeper debt hole. Mm. So some people say what's the new Malay administration is rolling out right now is a typical uh, radical shock therapy. What is your take on this, Professor? I'm asking this question because... You know, from a historical perspective, of course, there were certainly cases where shock therapy worked, such as in the case of the economic transition in Poland uh, in the late 1980s. But there were also cases of failure, notably in the case of Russia after the the you know after the collapse of the former Soviet Union. So when we talk about the status quo of Argentina. How do you think things will play out when we talk about uh, shock therapy? Well, we are in a critical illness. Uh, there is also a need for overdosing. So uh, the shock therapy, if it is really implemented successfully, which is really the choice of the uh, of uh, the militia constituencies, so they need rapid. Uh, and sweeping economic reform, they need to stabilize their economy, they need to reduce inflation, and also they need to attract investment, and then also need to pay the debt. So, uh, you know, given all these challenges, uh, a gradualistic approach won't really be able to satisfy the grand outcome. Of course, you know, if uh, it is implemented against the entrenched interest groups and uh, uh, is, uh, if it is there to injure the immediate needs of uh, the large public people and uh, there is likelihood of further social unrest and uh, the uh, bigger unemployment and uh, decline in the living standard of people. So, uh, well, this is really a very calculated uh, balance that's over there. But right now, um, people supported him uh, in the office, is there they, they would like to see a more immediate outcome out of it. So that's a risk to take, though. Mm, indeed. But thank you very much for joining us. That was Professor Liu Baochen, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics with the University of International Business and Economics. You are listening to World Today. We'll be back. Welcome. I'm Ilaf. Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. You are listening to World Today. I'm Ding Han in Beijing. The UK Supreme Court has upheld earlier decisions in rejecting a bid to allow an international to allow an artificial intelligence rather to be named as an inventor in a patent application. Technologist Stephen Thaler had looked for ways to have his AI recognized as the inventor of a food container as well as a flashing light beacon. In 2019, his attempt was rejected by the UK's、uh, Intellectual Property Office under a claim that only a person, a real person, could be named as an inventor. The decision was backed at the time by both the High Court as well as the Courts of Appeal in the country. 
So joining us now on the line is Duncan Bartlett, former BBC correspondent, and Duncan is also the presenter of a weekly podcast called China in Context. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the program again. So, Duncan, as you follow the development of this particular case over the years, do you think、uh, the courts in in the UK have a point that when we talk about an inventor, it can only be a it can only be a person. It must be a person. Well, the question is really, what is artificial intelligence in this situation? Is it a sort of being, or is it? At all, one way to define artificial intelligence is that it is a machine which mimics the work of the human mind. So, is it possible that at some stage, instead of just mim- mimicking and copying the work of a human mind, it actually becomes its own sentient mind? It thinks for itself independently. It's able to do creative things. For example, it's able to. Design a container for for liquid or a flashing light or something like that. So actually, what was coming before the courts was an almost philosophical、uh, question about the nature of consciousness. The background to this is, of course, that AI technology is advancing very rapidly and it's transforming so many areas of our lives.、Uh, things like autonomous cars,、um, very very sophisticated mapping. Uh, lots of information about medical conditions,、uh, how to design drugs which、uh, are effective in, in in treating people who are ill, and so on. And there's also a great deal of competition about which country is the most advanced in terms of AI. So I think it was actually quite fascinating that it went through the British courts because, in fact, this is a worldwide question as to what the nature of AI is and how it might transform our lives.、Mm, so we will touch upon. Uh, this part of the question a little bit later on in our discussion, but do you think this、um, uh, court ruling by by the U by by the Supreme Court of the UK will somehow end up stymieing AI innovation and even the use of artificial intelligence in the UK? The court says no. We're not trying to stymie the use of artificial intelligence. What we're saying is that in this very specific situation, AI itself can't be deemed to be the inventor of a particular thing. Only humans can invent things and claim a patent. So only people, actually human beings, people can say that they are the, the people who apply for, for a patent. They can't just say their machine did it.、Um, And so that's where the court has has let it rest on this particular occasion, but it still hasn't really answered the question, which is if you give a, a machine, an AI bot, as it were, a huge amount of autonomy, and you set it off on a question, and you say go and solve a problem, and then it comes back with a solution, can't it be said to be the one that's used its artificial intelligence to create something new? And the court actually rather left that question to one side, but simply said, "Well, when it comes to applying to patents, no. At the moment, only human beings can apply for patents." But many lawyers have looked at this and said, "Well, that stands for late 2023, but I wonder what the situation would be in 2024, 2025." Hmm. So,、uh, technological innovation is one aspect, but what about? Creation in other areas like writing, like both you and me are media、uh, people, so all of us need to write for our work, and、uh, we need to sometimes, as a columnist myself, I need to write op-ed. So I guess there were similar debates regarding the copyright, for example, in AI-generated works. Yes, the programmer of the AI, the creator. Or the user who is responsible for prompting the machine in the first place, the creator. What is your thought on this question? Well, I think there are two slightly different issues there, which is what are the threats to creative people, not just in journalism and writing, but across a whole range of professions. Exactly. Of the uh, rapid uh, increases in the sort of human-like nature of AI. You know, does that mean that that thousands and thousands of people around the world, in in terms of the legal profession, the writing profession, communication, education, and so on, are about to lose their jobs because AI is taking over? That's a subject of a very lively debate. And the other thing is, well, what about copyright 
actually, you know, we're already seeing bots going on to social media and copying material by other people and then spreading it worldwide. So I think copyright internationally has become a very grey area, actually. It's likely to become a much more contentious issue as the uh, AI develops. Hmm. So why do you think, uh, as you mentioned in the first place, this case taking place in your country has uh, some kind of international implications? That's because the number of AI-related patent submissions by Chinese researchers has increased rapidly, at least 200% in recent years. This is a great focus for Chinese scientists. How can we develop, how can we develop advanced AI? Mm. And you see, they're catching up with the Americans who've been ahead in this. So far, we've seen the Americans continue to take the lead in terms of AI. But this is an area of great power competition. You look at a Chinese player like Baidu, for example, they're expecting to take the lead in the future of AI. And they have the full support of the Chinese government. And yet since 2016, in America, uh, the policy of the American government is to make sure that they retain the lead in AI-related growth. So that's why, although this rather obscure court case on a, on, on, on a fairly symbolic issue in London uh, may be a curious distraction, the real competition is going on between the advanced scientific laboratories, both in the United States and China, and it's really not clear who's going to win that race yet. Okay. Thank you very much for putting this perspective but I guess uh, a Chinese mentality is all different countries, regardless of their sizes and power, should have uh, equal access to AI development rights. But thank you. That was uh, Duncan Bufflett, a former BBC correspondent and also the presenter of a weekly podcast, China in Context. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on our previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.